0: Chapter 2. To hear my mother tell it in later years, as a boy I was restless, inquisitive, energetic, determined, and ambitious. In the less biased opinions of my brothers, I was restless, destructive, willful, stubborn, and fanatically determined to amount to nothing. My father's opinion of me during my first 14 years was usually expressed in a wide selection of Bible verses aimed at describing the fate of rebellious boys like me. I don't know what there was in our temperaments that made Dad and me clash so during my boyhood. My older brothers, Harold and Bill, could work happily with him all day, but let me appear on the scene and sooner or later the sparks would fly. I know he prayed often to God for help in guiding me, and I know he worked on me harder than on all my brothers and sisters combined. That only served to make me think I was the only one he picked on, and my back got stiffer than ever. Like the serious row I had with him over carrying drinking water from our spring-fed well, about three blocks from the house. "'It's Bill's turn,' I argued. I was about ten and I was keeping close track of when it was Bill's turn or mine. A few incidents of late leading me to suspect Bill was slipping a few extra turns my way. Well, said my father abruptly, it won't break your back to help your brother once in a while. Get the bucket. I got the bucket and hiked over to the well, furious at what I considered an unjust order. It was a a small bricked-up well topped with a cistern pump, and when filled to overflowing by a little spring, it held about a dozen barrels. I started pumping and emptying the bucket into the overflow gully. I worked my back into a knot, pumping the well empty. Then I marched back and told my mother I couldn't get any water, because the well was dry. When Dad was informed of this at lunchtime, he was flabbergasted. But that well was full this morning. It can't be dry. "'If Bob says it's dry, it's dry,' said my mother. "'You know he wouldn't lie about it.'" Well, not until the next day, with the well once more filled and overflowing, did Dad solve the mystery. And as can be expected, when he discovered the work I had done to avoid carrying out his order without resorting to falsehood, he was not exactly filled with fatherly goodwill. Then there was the time he ordered me to chop some wood— and I cut up some choice fence posts he had brought home. And the time I nearly killed the family cow trying to ride it bareback. And on and on. I can't say I had a wretched childhood, but it could have been a lot happier if I had let it. The home Dad had built for us was up on the northeast side of Duluth in what is now the beautiful residential section called Lester Park. It was large enough and comfortable even when our family grew to include five boys and three girls, and in the 1890s, it was a paradise for children. A few clearings for farms on both sides, the wilderness behind, and a view of Lake Superior in the front. Fishing, swimming, and hunting all around us as long as the snow was gone, which was not for very long in Duluth. My folks belonged to the small church group known as the Plymouth Brethren, a closely knit group, intensely loyal to the church and each other. Probably its most unique feature was that women had no voice in the conduct of the services, nor were they allowed to talk in church. But they talked afterwards. I attended regularly. I had no escape. And heard a lot about God without learning a thing. School was worse. From 9 to 4, endurable in the fall and spring when we could run outside during recesses and lunch, but impossible during the bitter winter days. Then the teacher had the older boys keep the wood stove at red heat in the classroom at about 90 degrees while we roasted there in heavy winter clothes and long woolen underwear. No matter that we semi-rural kids had walked a mile or more, lizards were no excuse, and that even the town kids had outside chores, our principal didn't want any of us to get the pneumonia during the school hours. The result was that all of us had runny noses from the first frost until spring when we got soaked in the rivulets of melting snow and came down with mumps, measles, scarlet fever, diphtheria, and everything else in the book. I had one odd experience when I was in the fifth grade, but before that I had always had just enough black marks to overcome the red ones and get me passed from one grade to the next. In my fifth year, I suddenly discovered arithmetic made sense. Geography was not just some pink, green, and yellow areas on a map, but real places, perhaps with palm trees instead of snow, and reading If you read from one paragraph to the next instead of spelling out one word at a time, you could get a lot of fascinating information from books. I was so amazed at this sudden awakening that I read through all the books in the fifth grade and most of the sixth grade's books, too. My teacher was delighted. My folks were stunned. And on this great wave of enlightenment, I was skipped over the sixth grade and into the seventh. What a mistake that was for me. The seventh graders had put in a long, earnest year on the subjects I had skimmed over so swiftly, and when it came to reciting, I wasn't in their league. Maybe, with time and understanding, I might have caught up. But pampering is one thing a promising student didn't get then. Instead, he was usually pounded to a pulp as a sissy, a fate from which I was spared because I was already approaching six feet and was the biggest bulk in the class. That only made it harder on me. I was not only the biggest in the class, but also the dumbest. We call what I had an inferiority complex today, and I was crawling with it. I quit trying entirely and came to hate school with an almost physical violence. I wanted to break windows and kick out walls. I wasn't doing any better outside of school. For years, my brother Harold and then my brother Bill had carried papers for a circulation man named Pinky on a route that, for a quarter of a cent, a paper returned 12 cents a day, six days a week, or nearly $3 a month. Now it was my turn, and I muffed it. If it was a cold and snowy day, I'd be Letourneau of the Yukon running a trap line, And when I'd reach the end of the route, I'd find myself with five or six extra papers and no idea of what houses I'd skipped. Or if it was a fine day, I'd get to daydreaming on almost any subject but customers. The first time Pinky fired me, for too many complaints, Bill was able to intercede. But when my improvement lasted only a few days, I was fired with complete finality. The disgrace of it all. I couldn't hold a job for eight months that my brothers had held for years. Worse, I had lost the family claim to the route for my brother Louis, next in line of succession. Boy, you'll cut wood for this, said my father. How much wood, I demanded defiantly. One chunk for every paper. And if I cut more than that? If you got more than that, Bob, I'll believe it when I see it. But if you do, I'll pay the same per stick as you got per paper. Birchwood, of course. I made enough out of that to buy a twenty-two rifle and had to quit only when the woodshed was full. And Dad never again offered to pay me on a piecework basis for manual labor. I could close my mind to physical drudgery and go daydreaming off on a score of wild ideas, like becoming a lumberjack and riding white pine logs down the St. Croix River to Stillwater, or running a steam shovel in the iron mines of Hibbing, or running a trap line up near International Falls. As long as I thought Dad would have to pay for it, I was ready to work my body to a frazzle. I built my first piece of what might be called earth-moving equipment when I was 12. It was a heifer-pulled snow plow, designed to get me out of several hours of working open paths with a shovel. It was a V-shaped affair with curving sides to thrust the snow up into both sides, and it might have worked. The heifer kicked it and me to Flinders before I could find out, curing me forever of any regard for animal power of any kind. That summer, Dad had Harold and Bill working with him on building contracts, leaving me around the house as General Chore Boy. Harold was getting ready to go to the University of Minnesota to study engineering. He became an executive engineer for Standard Oil of New Jersey. And Bill was preparing himself for a general business course. He was a natural-born merchandiser and was my sales manager in 1938 before opening his own successful hardware business. I simply didn't have enough to do. I chopped the wood, hauled the water, and hoed the garden all before noon, and then ran wild through the woods and along the lake shore. I didn't know how wild I was myself until I started showing off for some friends. We were down at the lake shore and I pointed to a large rock thrust up like an island about 100 yards out in deep water. I might add that the temperature of Lake Superior rarely reaches 50 degrees, even after a long hot spell. Race you to that rock, I said, and with that I stripped and plunged in. The other kids were still testing the water with their toes, a little dubiously, when I climbed up on the rock. Finally, a couple did jump in and swim out to join me. But after we sat around in the sun a while, the icy swim back didn't look so inviting. There's only one way to do it, I said, and that's to plunge right in. One of the fellows was standing at the edge of the rock, some ten feet above the water. Is it all clear down there? I asked. Looks like it, he said. I took two steps and made a flying leap over the edge. In midair, I saw the vague outline of a rock about three feet below the surface. Now that I'm bald, you can see the exact configuration of that rock on my skull. Sixteen stitches were required to close the scalping I got that day. I came up stunned and started to call for help. Then the cold water acted like a restorative, and away I went, beating my rescuers to shore by twenty yards. I ran home before collapsing, saved by the first of many miracles in my life. I know Dad was scared to death when he saw the condition of my head, and he and Mother prayed long that night for me to come out of the state of shock I had dropped into after the doctor's needlework. But the next day, when I was as sound as ever, he concealed his vast relief by remarking, "'Only fools jump in where angels fear to tread.' For some reason, that hurt me more than the dent in my head." Being confined to bed until the doctor returned to check on me, I found plenty of time to feel sorry for myself. I felt that I was unloved and unwanted. I decided there was only one thing for me to do. I would run away. You can be sure if you want an excuse to do something wrong, the devil will give you a good one. Shortly after that, with the approach of cold weather, I was ordered to chop some wood and made the mistake of cutting up Dad's fence posts, as I mentioned earlier. He was furious. I couldn't see my offense as that serious, and offered to cut some new posts to make good his loss. As usual, when I argued with him, I didn't soothe him any. His final remark was that if I hadn't done it on purpose, I was too dumb to know a good fence post when I saw one. That was it. I waited until dark and then ran away taking with me only the clothes on my back. It was one of those pitch-black nights with a biting north wind that marks the coming of winter to the north country, and I wasn't running very fast on the rutted, rocky road. In the timbered stretches of the road, I thought I saw more wolves than any 13-year-old kid should face, but I couldn't quit. I think if there had been any real wolves, I'd have let them tear me apart rather than return home in defeat. I saw a hole blacker than most in the darkness, and I knew it to be a ravine in which we had often played, so I felt my way into it, and a ledge sheltered from the wind. There I spent the night, wondering what my father would say when they found me there, frozen stiff. Hunger drove me out at daybreak, but I had an answer for that. I knew that I was not far from the small farm of Mrs. Spagmo a kind-hearted Swedish widow for whom I had done a lot of chores. I figured that if I milked her cow for her, she'd give me a breakfast that would carry me all the way to Two Harbors, where I'd be sure to get a job as a cabin boy on an oar boat. I figured correctly, and while I was deep in pancakes, Mrs. Spagmo asked if I couldn't delay my nautical career long enough to let her run into Duluth on a few errands. She'd pay me a dollar for hitching up the horse, feeding the chickens, and digging up the potatoes at her small patch. With offers of such wealth at the very start of my career, I couldn't resist. Then she was late in returning, so I had to milk the cow to earn my supper, and milk it again in the morning to earn my breakfast. The upshot of it all was that I had run a mile away from home, and there I stayed as Mrs. Spagmo's hired man. I know now, of course, that Mrs. Spagmo had talked it over with my parents and that they were agreed it might do me a world of good to stay with her if she could put up with me. I soon found myself fenced in with all sorts of restrictions. Back home, as the fourth of what were now eight children, I was kept fed, clothed, and washed with systematic regularity. Here, as the sole charge of a lonely widow... I was washed until I thought my skin was wearing out. My personal program was arranged from pre-dawn milking to hauling in the last load of wood to carry the stove through the night. School, too, and now I had a mile farther to walk. There were no dumb Swedes in my family, Mrs. Spagmo said, and I won't have one now, even if he does have a French name. She meant well, but I was fighting a stubborn battle. Every school day, I walked by the family house without glancing to left or right and walked by it the same way in the evening. The snows kept getting deeper and the days shorter, but I wouldn't give up. In class, I resisted teachers with the same single-minded stubbornness. I was definitely on the road to hell and working hard to stay there. My Aunt Rochelle and Uncle Emanuel Richards we're having the annual Thanksgiving gathering of Laterno families and other Vermont friends at their house on the west side of Duluth that year. So I got word at school from my sister Maddie that Mother wanted me to be there. And if you aren't there and people ask about you, Mother's going to feel pretty bad trying to explain the silly situation you've worked yourself into. I didn't want that to happen, so I went. But I was still on my high horse. Dad was on a horse just as tall. We went through the motions for the other guests, but we weren't getting anywhere, even after Thanksgiving prayer. In that mood, we might never have got anywhere if a heavy snow hadn't started to fall. Within two hours, the roads were impassable to sleighs. It was snug at Uncle Emmanuel's, and there was plenty of room. But back home, there were the milk cows and chickens that had to be cared for for that night. The final arrangements were that the women would stay and the men would plow their ways back on foot to care for their livestock. Somehow that put me behind my father who was breaking trail on the long hike clear across town. We plowed along in silence. We got along better that way. In fact, we got along so well that pretty soon we were taking turns breaking trail and even laughing when one or another of us fell down. But when we reached our house, I was still prepared to go on to Mrs. Spagbow's. "'Better come on in, Bob,' Dad said. "'You can be sure Mrs. Spagmo has already taken care of her stock.' I was pretty cold, and that extra mile alone did look a long way. I went in and had some hot milk and helped around the barn and even enjoyed it. In the morning, I helped with the chores again and discovered my father could make a fair batch of pancakes when he had to. That led to my helping him cut wood to pay for my breakfast, and on that job I made another discovery. As long as I was an eager and willing worker, and not going out of my way to plague him, Dad could be a mighty fine fellow. By noon I saw my running away from home and rebellious stand in all its pettiness. And I was one repentant boy. I started to say so, but Dad stopped me. Don't say a word, he said. I know what you've been going through. I've been going through it myself, so we're both wrong. What a lesson that has been to me all my life. Discovering my father's love changed my whole attitude. And chores that I had hated and fought against resentfully, I now did cheerfully because I wanted to serve Him. It's like that only more so when you discover the Lord and you don't grow up and move away from your Father in heaven. He's with you always and everywhere. If you aren't serving Him now, it's because you don't know Him, like I really didn't know my own Father. But when you do know Him, you'll love Him. And when you love Him, you'll serve Him. And with the greatest happiness in doing so that you'll ever know. I was a changed character around the house after that, but it would be too much to say that my attitude toward school had improved. I still found it to be an enormous waste of time, and there was nothing around the house to really occupy my mind, unless it was trying to repair a clock, or pipe the spring to bring it closer to the house, or endlessly question Harold about the horseless carriages that had motors in them powered by gasoline. If I had any recreation at all, as we know it today, it was in going to the docks in Duluth to watch the ore trains come in with their red loads and transfer them to ore boats. There were steam locomotives and steam shovels and steamboats moving thousands of tons of ore in the most massive display of power any kid could hope to see. The man who brought the ore trains out on the long trestle and dumped them into the hoppers that fed the ore to the boats below must be, I thought the happiest man in the world. That winter of 1901-1902, I was considered to be sufficiently grown to work with Harold and Bill on Dad's construction jobs. I think it was then, for the first time, I began to appreciate what Dad was up against in raising Harold, Bill, Maddie, Sarah, Lewis, Marie, and Philip. Phil was born in 1900, without getting a lot of backtalk out of me. I remember one bitter cold day we borrowed Uncle Jay's team of carriage horses to haul some lumber from a freight yard to a warehouse Dad was building. While we worked with painfully cold fingers to load the heavy timbers, if you ever banged a timber, you felt your fingers just break off like glass, a man inside the freight office watched us through a frosted window. When we were loaded, he stepped out and called Dad over for a brief talk, from which Dad returned mad enough to be walking on stilts. "'What's the matter?' I asked. "'You kids,' he snorted. "'I get mad enough trying to train all of you to do the Christian thing, so when I meet a grown man like that, I don't have much Christian patience left.' Not knowing what to say to that, I said nothing, which showed I was learning. "'He wants to borrow the team,' Dad continued." "'Now don't forget this, Bob. "'If you ever want to borrow a team, "'don't be afraid to get out in the cold "'and help the owner put on his load. "'Don't step out after the sleigh is loaded "'and ask to borrow the team.' "'Yes, sir,' I said. "'Did you lend it to him?' "'I had to,' he said. "'I had to set a Christian example for you kids. "'That's what makes me mad.' "'That was Dad. "'Going out of his way to set an example for his children,' And there I had been, trying his patience to the point of exhaustion and then jumping in with an argument or some stubborn act of defiance. I had a lot to make up for. In addition, that winter was a brute. Then a letter arrived from Mr. Walker, a member of the Plymouth Brethren, who had gone west to Portland, Oregon. Like Dad, he was a building contractor, and his report stirred up Dad's restless desire to move. In Oregon, you had outdoor construction work year-round, if you didn't mind a little warm rain. No snow, the biggest roses you ever saw, a big boom going on, and a shortage of carpenters. Uncle Jay couldn't understand why anyone would ever want to leave Duluth. Uncle Emanuel and Uncle Bob Gilmore, with a thriving partnership in a blacksmith shop and warm forges to work over all winter, felt the same way. But Dad had had enough of pounding nails with frozen fingers. We moved as soon as Dad finished the house he was working on, with Harold electing to remain behind to enter the University of Minnesota. Mother got a little tearful about that. The first of her children to leave the family roof. But I don't have to worry about Harold, she said to assure herself. He's the steady one. From the way she looked at me, I knew what she meant. As for me, I was glad to be gone. If my attitude around the house had improved, I still resented the outside world, and going to church was a duty I performed only because it pleased the family. About all I knew of religion was that I didn't have it, and that if you didn't have it, you were going to hell. Maybe, I thought, In a new town where I wasn't known as that stubborn Letourneau kid, I could make a fresh start. I still had to learn that without God, a change in geography isn't going to change a man's soul any more than travel with a circus will change the spots on a leopard. But we do have one advantage over the leopard. He can never change. But we, by finding God who is everywhere, can change our souls. And with them, our whole lives.